With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. trying to see where did it did it put it on my page what did it do uh we are live i'm just trying to figure out exactly where because <laughs> i'm looking I'm there <laughs> i just don't know exactly did it put it on my page see if i can find you oh you're killing me uh let's see let's see let's see because it is live i'm looking at it it is live i'm just trying to figure out where did it put it uh, hello everybody wherever we are the joys of technology. <laughs> All right, let's see, let's see, let's see. Uh, I don't know why it's gonna fight with me today. So right. Ricardo, it says, Hello, we're on the leadership line. It is on the home, I don't know why it's not showing up on my, All right, let's see, let's see, let's see. Why is it on your uh, leadership line page? Okay, that's why I According thought. According to my Facebook. <laughs> yeah, it's not showing me anything. Okay, fine. All right, everybody ready? Mm-hmm. All right, let's go ahead and get started. I'm just going to assume. All right, everybody, welcome to another edition of the Leadership Blend Live Podcast with your host, Ricardi Rice, and my co-host. Simone Shereen. And our newest intern. Cameron Wallace. All right, so today we are doing what we do best. We're having those really hard conversations. And today's conversation front and center is education. You know, what has COVID done to it? What was that? Look, we know that last year was a tumultuous year for everybody in general. But for parents with kids, for educators, it was a, it, the education system pretty much got flipped on its head last year due to COVID and having to go immediately to virtual learning, trying to figure out how to do things on the fly. Um, so today we're going to really look back at last year and moving forward into this year to really look into what happened, where we stand, what should we do moving forward, all those great things. So what better way, because y'all know me, I love to get the experts. So what better way to get into it than to get into it with two doctors? Now, y'all know these two faces. They're not new to the show. We're, they're blend family. So we're so excited to have Dr. Robert Gaines and Dr. Dana Rickman. Welcome back to the Leadership Blend. How are we doing? 
What's up, Ricardo? Thanks for having us. It is so great to be back. Thanks for having us. Yeah, of course, of course, of course. All right, so y'all brought a long list of stuff with y'all today, so I'm not going to dilly-dally around. We're going to jump right into it. So, uh, Robert, uh, tell everybody who you are, what's your position with the company, and tell us about the organization. Sure. So, Robert Gaines, Director of Communications at the Georgia Partnership, and uh, our work really centers around um, informing and influencing leaders across the state in different sectors for the purposes of improving student achievement. Now that's the what, I like to give the what and then the how. The how is primarily research and advocacy. So um, what we're talking about today is really our annual report which synthesizes information from a lot of different sources about 10 really important issues. Uh, and we do that all year. And so that's one of the things we do is take information that people have already kind of written on and we make it really digestible for folks who may not read academic uh, journals, for instance. And then the advocacy part, we really try to connect with organizations that are advancing policies that are good for students, all the way from pre-K to post-secondary um, and into the workforce development pipeline so that students who are entering a pre-K program and then hopefully graduate from a post-secondary institution are equipped and ready to advance um, Georgia's uh, economy by way of a job and a career. So that's kind of the space we live in. All right, all right. So, um... <laughs> backgrounds though. Can we get quick backgrounds? Because I don't know if everyone else has seen the doctors have joined us before. So background, like just personal background. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um... I'm professional too. That will be All right. Tennessee I'm born, Atlanta bred, uh, Morehouse college graduate, very proud uh, Morehouse man. Also attended Penn State University and uh, U University of Georgia, where I earned a uh, master's and a doctorate, respectively. Joined the partnership about three years ago, and uh, it's been a fun experience. Love working with Dana, and the job really uh, stretches you every day because education, policy, and all the external factors that shape the work we do keep you on your toes. So no day is dry and um, you just try to keep up as best you can. Yeah. All right, Dana, what about you? A little background. I am Dana Rickman. I'm the vice president of the Georgia Partnership for Excellence in Education. And I've been uh, at the partnership since 2011. I started out as the policy director uh, and then got the title of vice president, which just means I'm the policy director with more stuff to do, uh, but it's been, it's been a ton of fun. Uh, I'm actually a military brat, so I grew up uh, a Navy brat, so you know, on the coast uh, every couple of years, moving west coast, east coast, uh, around the military bases. But I, um, my background is actually in research and policy, and I got my PhD from Georgia State University, Panther Pride, uh, and so I've worked for like the Annie Casey Foundation and have done a bunch of research on education policy, so I'm a really a research data policy wonk kind of person. And so I've worked really hard over the, you know, my career to take, you know, as Robert mentioned, complicated research and, and make it digestible to everybody so that people can get the facts and make good decisions. And that's what we do with partnership. Yeah. All right, so let's get into uh, why this is created every year and what is the objective of the top 10 issues in education? Well, our, our top 10 issues to watch, you know, it, the, the stakeholder audience is, is vast. That we initially, you know, we created it for 
state level decision makers. And so we're talking about like legislators, but also people in agencies and whatnot to really take these core issues that we think are, are facing Georgia and give them some facts about what's the relevance, what does the research say, what are some implications of different decisions. But over the years, I think, Robert, this is our 17th edition. Sure. Um, it's really taken on a life yeah. of its own. And so we, we have that same core stakeholder group, but it's also now used in education classes and universities. The PTA uses it to help educate parents. Um, other advocacy groups use it to help just to educate the average citizen about what's going on in education, why are these things important, and what are the implications that you know, we're gonna talk about today. And we, we really try to use straightforward language so that people can really engage with very complicated issues that feels like we've been doing this a number of years, they're getting more complicated over time, it feels like. So I don't know if I just know more um, or they really are getting more complicated. <laughs> a little both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say just kind of as an introductory question. So there's, I know there's 10 issues every year, but are there this year, the word unprecedented was like 2020's number one word. Um, everything was just so unprecedented. We've never been here before. This is just like totally new water. So are all of the issues, are we expect, does that look a little different in the report? Are most of these issues a result of everything new that we've never experienced before? Or is it just kind of, you know, the, the 2020 impact on existing issues in education? That's actually a great question because as we were working through this, you're right, like unprecedented. I mean, the, the situation that we find ourselves in is unprecedented. The issues that are facing education, they are not new. Nothing that we talk about, that we're going to talk about today is a result of the pandemic or a result of the um, economic crisis that came. Uh, what we feel what happened is it has highlighted issues that many of us have been talking about for years that were already there. And we'll talk a lot about equity and access, you know, and things like that. But it made the issues that were already there so much harder to address, yet so much more urgent to address. Uh, so you had the twofer that they 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 either made them worse or, and then made it harder to address and made it like we we need to fix this now. And so it really just exacerbated existing issues. I don't think Robert, was there anything new? No, not, not really. I mean, I think it, I think to Dana's point, it forced our hand on a lot of things that we've been able to gloss over for years because maybe it's not polit politically expedient, it's not convenient, or we didn't know how to get at it. And now it's like, okay, we have to address these foundational issues because if we don't, we're going to continue to see some of the trends we've seen in terms of uh, equity or inequities. Um, and the student achievement declining dramatically, learning loss. There are certain things you can't recoup over time um, without addressing some foundational issues. And so I think this year, as we saw yesterday in the state of the state, the governor pointed out that there's some things we just have to talk about and have to address if we want Georgia to continue to be a great place for everyone who lives here. And Simone, to your question too, one thing that's a little different about this year, the way we talk about the issues, and we did this a little bit last year too, historically, like our first 15 editions, they were sort of 10 discrete issues, though issues were kind of always sort of related to each other. It was like, okay, here's an early learning. Here's one about teachers. Here's one. Last year, we connected them with, with a theme of economic development, but this year, they really are interrelated and overconnecting of this story of you know, what we talked about because of the 
because of COVID, because of this, this inequity problem, we really dug in about sort of these structural historical barriers that have always been there that need to be completely taken down and sort of put back together. And so instead of just sort of a short-term sort of recovery kind of stuff, short-term you know, relief thing, we're really looking at long-term structural changes that have to be made across all of these issues. Um, and so that's a little bit different for us uh, just in terms of how we address, approach the issues. Right. All right, so let's go ahead and crack the top and let's go ahead and get into it. Uh, so the first one, uh, Robert, I'll let you introduce them and then y'all can, we can kind of get into them. Sure, so number one is equity, the imperative for recovery to success. And I'd say this is, this is that springboard issue where when you're looking at what happened last year um, and the question around um, disparities and inequities became very clear, um, we, we had to really revisit an issue that we brought up in last year's uh, report, which was that Georgia was on a track um, in terms of its economics, uh, its workforce to have 1.5 million people by 2030, I think it was, be unemployable, to not have the skill set they needed to be uh, viable candidates in the workforce. COVID cut that timeline in half. So what was 2030 became 2025. Uh, and so it created a sense of urgency around really uh, beefing up our education system and workforce opportunities, because what you realize is if you got that many people who are not going to be able to get a job, the way to address that is ensure the education system is equitable and that workforce um, access is equitable. And so what we realize is we cannot afford to go back to our normal. There was a lot of conversation in 2020 was getting back to normal. Yeah. We said out the gate, getting back to normal is not a viable option. And it's not something that um, if we want to see progress in our state, we can go back to. So we really, um, looked at all those issues and said, okay, how do we rethink education? How do we reinvent education in a way that'll work for everybody? That'll ensure everybody has at least an equal shot at getting to where they wanna be. We know that we can't control outcomes, but we can at least do better at create, creating equitable opportunities for folks who wanna do something with their lives. Um, and so we, we took that lens of equity, particularly around racial and social uh, context and applied it to the whole report, which is what Dana just noted, pulling that thread all the way through. And I, I, I think what, what this first issue does is really lay out, which we try to very clearly lay out this argument that if you look at what happened when COVID hit and what continues to happen where Africans American, African Americans in particular, but low income Georgians and uh, Georgians of color, more likely to get COVID, more like least likely to have health insurance. They have higher unemployment rates, um, higher percentages of household insecurities and all of these other negative things have happened to our populations of color and low income. And that's not like an accident. Right, that you can actually look at historical policies and decisions and structural barriers that made that a pretty much assured outcome of what was going to happen. This sort of disproportionate impact of these crises, um, frankly, based on race. And then you look at the impacts of the children in school, the, the kids who were in school, especially again, children of color, but low income children generally 
missed more time, had lower quality access, all of these kinds of things have hit harder on schooling. And so you start thinking about the educational system and what we know now and have known for a while is that your socioeconomic status and your race is a better predictor of post-secondary success than uh, your cognitive ability. And when that's true, like when that predictor is true, that's a systems problem, not an individual. It's not the people in the system. It's the problem with the system. And so thinking about how all that has laid out, what are the systems that we're really talking about? And so then that, so that issue one sort of lays all that out. And then we use that lens of what are these systems we're talking about uh, that have caused these inequities that we have to fix to fix the inequities. Uh, and then we start with issue two and you know do that all the way through. All right, so let's let's go with that being said. Let's well, let me ask this because when I initially met you guys two or three years ago, there was a pullback to the conversation about vocational schools and really bringing them back because that skill set that they would acquire through a vocational school is fading away. Uh, you know, the labor, especially when it pertains to real estate and electricians and welders and all that things. Is that a real conversation that we're really going to have to have now? Because I felt like a couple of years ago was kind of theory. Now, is this something we really need to talk about that can actually aid in what we're talking about in this particular moment? Yes, absolutely. And that's actually been one that we've been pushing. And when I say we, not just the Georgia partnership, but, but Georgia in general, is how do we, especially through our technical college system, but these sort of middle skill, really highly skilled jobs that do not require a four-year degree, but things like everybody says welding and you can't get through a conversation without saying welding. So I'll just say it so we don't have to go back to it. Uh, but all of these others um, really highly skilled technical kind of jobs that pay really good wages. Like when I hear what they make, I'm like, you know, questioning my own personal life choices. Trust me, I played around with a blowtorch after I heard about how yeah. much I did. I, um, I got a blowtorch. But there has, you know, for, for years and years, there's always been sort of a stigma around, oh, you're going to Votech, you know, mm -hmm. that's for those kids or, you know, the kids that aren't as smart. And these are really challenging mm -hmm. programs. And so the, what we've been trying to do is really change how people think about those kind of programs and that four-year college is not for everybody. Um, we don't want everybody to go to four-year college because there's not enough jobs there. Um, and so thinking about the different on-ramps, um, we have friends at the Metro Chamber of Commerce that talk about the different on and off ramps to a career. And, you know, how can we have a lot of different on-ramps into a career, either through apprenticeships or internships or two-year degrees, four-year degrees, how do credentials stack up and thinking about longevity of careers. Like those are conversations that we really are, are trying to push right now. So oh, leading into the second issue, I have a question. Um, the yeah. second issue, top 10 issue was about funding. Yep. Um, which, which every single year, the, the, not every year, but during the session, our state legislature has a mandate to pass the budget. It's if they do nothing else, it's like the one thing that they have to do. Mm. Um, and it's a very important piece of all of these other issues that we're talking about and, and whether or not they could all come to fruition and how quickly they could come to fruition. So this year, remarkably enough, there are so many, uh, there are very sincere legislative priorities in the state of Georgia that um, not just coming from Governor Kemp, but also coming from the, the leaders and, and both parties that have to do with bills to pass sports betting, bills to focus on, on um, uh, moving to standardized time and away from uh, spring forward, fall back 
time zones. There's bills <laughs> about um, about policing and about uh, racial equity and about bias during 911 phone calls. Lots of bills about elections and voting and a lot of noise that I really, I can't help but to understand as totally unrelated to like very current, very present problems and just a reaction from recent news. And also just completely, completely, I mean, I'm not hearing about sports betting for the purpose of funding education or the, the holes in education. So how do you, how do you, how do you approach the topic of funding with, with our state and how do you handle like the political climate and the fact that everyone's attention just seems to be completely hard, hard to focus on the real issues? I have some thoughts. I don't, I don't know. Um, well, generally, you're right, Simone. In terms of like the bills being filed, that you know, there's a there's a lot to to your question and a lot of layers there. And so, a lot of bills, and with respect to our legislators, because there are many of the legislators that are elected in Georgia really have a, a servant's heart and really you know desperately are, are, are doing what they feel is the best for the, for the state of Georgia. Um, but a lot of times, a lot of bills. It, but they also they're only there for two years and so they're looking for like quick wins quick turnarounds quick things that they could go back to their the people who will like say i did this for you you wanted this this was your concern and this is what i'm going to do about it so you see especially at the beginning of session a lot of bills filed that to me really reflect the sort of what's in the news. And so everybody's worried about election security right now because that's everywhere. And so you're gonna see a lot of bills filed around election security. I'd be surprised if we actually had a lot that actually made it all the way through. Um, and so that's why you see so many bills. And so they can say, I filed this bill, I've, I've listened to your concerns. And so that, that's part of your, your, your question. In terms of education funding you know, for Georgia, we took a big hit or we took a hit you know last year uh, where they did a 10 percent cut um to what we call qbe which is the the state funding formula and it was felt at the time that they did that that between the cares act funds funds that were coming down and the a lot of local districts have reserves rainy day reserves that they was could sort of offset that and sort of float for a year and not take too much of a hit to the extent that was true, we, we can debate. You know, the good news is, is that in uh, Governor Kemp's State of the State yesterday, he announced real good intentions to put a lot of that money back. And so we won't, we don't anticipate to see further cuts to education this coming year, which is really great news. There was, there was a worry that they would, they would continue to have to cut. Um, and it looks like we might get some of that money back. I think for us though, a more fundamental problem there's two issues. One, there's just the overall level of funding. Uh, Georgia averages about the middle of the nation in terms of like per pupil funding. Um, so there's, there's a question of how much we have to spend overall. But the real question for us is how we distribute that money and do we do it equitably? Um, and so for, for districts that have, that are really poor districts that have high percentages of low income students, it's more expensive to educate those kids. Uh, and for poor districts that don't have the local tax base to really make up the difference. So we see a lot of inequities across the state in terms of, of, of ability of local districts to provide a certain level of quality education. And that's the, I think, an even bigger issue for us in Georgia is really looking at like, you know, what the Gwinnett's and the Forsyth's and the really more wealthier districts can provide for their students versus really small, especially the rural, you know, areas that 
don't have broadband, but they also don't have teachers and all these other resources. The equity to access to resources is stunning. And when you look into it, it's not just income-based. You see, especially uh, districts with large percentages of uh, students of color, African-American students in particular, they tend to lack a lot of the resources that the wider districts have. So there's a racial component there too. But let me ask this. Uh, Roger, is there more you wanna say about that? Or Ricardo, go ahead. Let me ask this question. When you say uh, that it costs more to, uh, in essence, educate in these uh, other types of districts that are not uh, thing, what do you mean exactly? Are we talking about personnel? Or are we talking about extra equipment that's needed? What are we talking about exactly? Well, you know, all the things. And again, this is not to, to say there's like a really a lot of smart kids living in poverty. Um, so it's not a comment on anybody's cognitive ability, but low income children tend to cost more simply because they have more needs. And so you're talking about children that come to school hungry, that come to school that don't have, you know, the family supports that a lot of more you know, upper income people have that have all you know, extracurricular engagements and things like that. Uh, they tend to be a couple of years behind, you know, in terms of like, you know, on grade level reading and all that other kind of stuff. And so there's um, social emotional supports that you have to fund. There are usually remediation report uh, supports that you have to fund to get them caught up. And so the things that we know work for, you know, high risk, low income students, you know, extended day, wraparound services. Uh, a lot of times the schools are the only place for um, healthcare, uh, social, uh, mental health support, dentistry. Uh, you know, things like that. And so schools for, that have high percentages of low income kids, they have to do more than just basic education to keep their kids up. Okay, so we're talking about basically filling in the gap. Yeah, I mean, a great example, and this was actually not even in rural, uh, a couple of years ago, there was a school in DeKalb County that um, it was considered a, you know, a failing school by the by the numbers, but they had, there was a abandoned building that was in the school zone that closed down, like they demolished it because it was abandoned. And it turned out there were like 30 kids that were enrolled in this elementary school that actually lived in that abandoned building. And so the school came together and helped them find new housing, transportation, coats, clothes, you know, all of these kinds of things. And that cost the school, it was mainly the teachers doing their, you know, their personal money. But when you have to deal with situations like that, that costs money, right? And trying to figure out and educate on top. And so it's those kinds of things where low-income kids bring more challenges to get the kids being able to focus on their learning. Okay. And additionally, Ricardo, you know, one of the things that uh, we've been talking about for a few years now is this idea of how much does it actually cost to educate a child adequately, right? Which is the standard the Georgia legislature set. In the Constitution of Georgia, the state has to provide an adequate education. Well, what is, what is the monetary value of an adequate education? We don't know that as a state. And so part of what we're advocating for is someone to do that research to say, in the state of Georgia, it takes X amount of dollars to provide an adequate education. And then, you know, above or below, you can start making some of those equitable allocations so that if you see that students in some parts of the state are $1,000 below what that number is, that threshold, you can make more calculated and strategic decisions accordingly because you know for sure that at least as of 2021, this is the dollar amount that needs to be allocated to each student to meet the standard that the state has established, but we don't know that number. So mm -hmm. if you look at 
um, issue too. We advocate two specific policies, one of which is you know, a cost study so that we can know for sure the amount of money it costs to educate students in our state. We don't really know that right now. I think Georgia is very comfortable with not defining things that are very critical for important policy decisions. And the same thing happens in the justice space all the time is that if crimes of moral turpitude can't, can't A, B, C, D, E, but we're not gonna define moral turpitude. So I think this is kind of a, kind of a similar situation. Can you explain where the resistance comes from? Like and what, what, the, what the argument is for the resistance? Why, like what the argument is for, I understand we could always better distribute the funds and, I, and I, that's clearly a huge problem, but in, in terms of whether or not there is enough, or should be more? Like, where does some of those well, come from? Where are the arguments? Is, a lot of it is political. Um, and so for one, if you say that there should be more money, based on our current tax revenue, there just isn't. Um, I mean, education takes, up the, if you put in early learning, K-12 and post-secondary, it's, it's well more than half the state budget. And so they do allocate a large percentage of the state revenues to education. And so if you are committed to not finding new sources of revenue, which is another way of saying raising taxes, mm -hmm. uh, then you've already determined this is what we're going to spend regardless of anything else. There's that. Um, and every couple of years, there is a concerted effort to revise the funding formula to really adjust for a lot of these equitable, equitable things that we've been talking about. Um, and it never goes anywhere because it is such a political landmine because when you talk about basically redistributing funds, if you're not gonna talk about cost and you're gonna say, you know, this is how much we have to spend, there's gonna be winners and losers, right? Um, and so a lot of the losers uh, don't, want to lose money. And so you have a sort of a pushback of, well, if you're going to redistribute more here and you have a set pie, where are you going to take it from? And that's, and everybody's using all their money. It's not like people have extra money. They're like, oh, I can. So it's, it becomes very, very fraught with, with that. Um, and so that makes it really tough. And every time we push for a cost study, the fear is that when they actually start calculating what it would truly cost to educate to the level that the state has said, this is what we're gonna do. It is such an astronomically large number that it feels like we're never gonna be able to do that. Um, and we've taken that into account when we've talked to people and said, okay, well, if, you know, if it's this number that we can't get to right now, set a target, say, okay, we're gonna try and get there in five years, but here's our plan to slowly, you know, increase or, you know, do we, what, what can we prioritize and what are we not gonna do? Like use it to help prioritize it. And so, but I think people are afraid to put a really large unrealistic number out there um, and then be held accountable to it because it could be disenfranchise a lot of people. They'd be like, oh, no, I can't do it. Stepping away, uh, it's too mm -hmm. much. All right, so let's, we got to keep it moving because we got what seven, seven more. We got to keep moving. Y'all know how we get. We got to keep it moving. All right. Actually, that conversation leads us into issue number three. So my question leading into issue number three is because we're talking about early learning. If we tackled early learning, particularly for children of color, uh, be it as where they actually start, uh, building relationships with their parents out the gate. Uh, knowing where their home life is out the gate. How big of a advantage would it be if we put more resources into early learning as it pertains to children of color? Would it help? Would it not help? Yeah, I mean, I can't give you a, 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 a numerical response, but it would absolutely help. I can, I can talk a little bit around the dollars and cents of what early learning means to Georgia's economy. Um, we could talk about 
how early learning impacts, um, you know, student achievement later in life, uh, third grade reading, things like that. From an economic development standpoint, which is a lot of how we um, discuss our work, um, I can tell you that, uh, let's see here, in Georgia, the early, the early care and education industry generates about $4.7 billion just as an industry, right? So that's, that's from a business perspective. Um, there's an organization called Gears that basically said that about $24 billion of parents' annual earnings are supported by the availability of childcare. So if you think about childcare centers closing during COVID and how that impacted people's ability to go to work, and therefore make a living. And this is crazy cycle, right? And of that um, revenue generated, there's about $1.75 billion in economic activity um, and about $105 million in tax revenue that is, is generated or lost, I think, to the childcare issue. So there's money being made, there's money being lost, and you have, you have a large swath of people in certain parts of Georgia who have such unstable childcare circumstances that they themselves can't advance their own career. So, um, you know, I think when you talk about students of color and getting those early interactions, uh, hearing, having dialogue, being read to, being exposed to um, just highly engaging environments, it does, it does a lot for their development. Dana can probably speak a little bit more deeply about it, but Absolutely, Ricardo, to your, your question generally. Yeah, early learning is, is critical. And on that birth to work pipeline, that, that early component where you've got early education, uh, it has huge implications for I think some of the outcomes we see on the, the latter part of that pipeline. Yeah, I mean, a, a strong early education system, it's, it's a twofer, right? Like it, as Robert was saying, for the child, a high quality early learning we know has lifetime benefits. Um, and especially what we know about the research now in that zero to three population, like that's when the little brains are just exploding and doing their neural connections and, and getting strong. And then we know that children who aren't exposed to quality environments, uh, and what I mean by quality, like, you know, toxic stress kind of environments, or if they have very poor nutrition, you know, all of these kinds of things, those neurons and what they don't connect and they're not as strong. And that, that affects your ability to learn and, you know, everything down the line. Um, and so that foundation is so important. It's, you know, it's a thing that we all hear. It's, you're going to fix a house. If the foundation is strong, it's very easy to fix a house, you know, but if that foundation is cracked or, you know, whatever, it's much, much harder, right? Uh, but the twofer is, you know what, and I think we all experienced this when, when COVID hit, is the support that, it, so we have long-term great outcomes for kids, but in the immediate term right now, if you have access to high quality early learning as the family, uh, the family can work. And so, you know, we've got, you know, other surveys have shown that, you know, especially low-income families, that, you know, about a quarter of low-income workers have had to either quit their job or pass up like a promotion in their job because they didn't have, they couldn't work out the childcare. And so for example, you know, if you're working in a factory and you're, you know, working on the line and you get a promotion to weekend shift manager, well, you can't take it because there's no weekend childcare. So then you're stuck in this low paying job and there's no way to, you know, it, it, things like that. Um, or uh, we have a lot of low income, especially in the TCSG in the community college community, I mean, their average age student is like 28 years old. 
right? And so a lot of the 28 year olds are gonna have little kids. And so how do you coordinate class with your internship or your apprenticeship, you know, all of this kind of stuff if you don't have stable childcare that you can afford? Uh, I mean, childcare is just ridiculously expensive. And so the, the idea around available high quality childcare, especially in rural areas, but Metro too, it's hard to find. Um, especially if off hours, if you're working nights or weekends or, you know, whatever, that it impacts the current labor force and the long-term educational growth of the kids. And so it's really a two generation or three generation uh, issue as, as you think through it. And so there's a lot that we need to be doing with the early care industry to help because it's basically unlike K-12, the funding for early learning, it's not there's no, I mean, there's state funding for Georgia pre-K, but, and there's some, there's federal funding for Head Start, but mostly early learning centers rely on parent tuition. Like they are private businesses. Mm -hmm. And so, and they tend to operate right on the margin and they need to be full to keep, you know, they need to sort of keep their, keep all their kids in so that they can keep operating. Um, and so that's one, one reason why we saw so many clothes over COVID was that they couldn't operate fully just because of space and you know, all these other kinds of things. So if they've only got 50 to 60 of their percent of their kids, they're not going to make payroll at the end of the month. There's just not enough money you know, coming in. And if you're relying on parent fees as the parents are becoming unemployed, like it's just not a sustainable model. And that affects you know, the, the salary of the people that work there. And that's a whole nother um, issue, but the, we really need to rethink the funding model around early learning. That was going to be my next question was, uh, should early learning education, early child education be one in, included in that conversation about vocational learning because technical colleges do train and facilitate these kinds of uh, employees for these organizations? Mm -hmm. So I was going to ask that, but you kind of already covered that. All right, so let's let's keep it moving. Anybody got Cam? You got any thoughts? You, you sitting there soaking up? Any thoughts? You supposed to be impressing the people. <laughs> oh, I mean, I had a couple of thoughts on the last uh, on the last couple of points, but I mean, for this one specifically, I would say like with the increased expenses of COVID, like how does that affect the new budget or the proposed budget that should be coming for for the early early learning um, budget? I mean, like there are new expenses that were kind of like, as you were saying, like unprecedented, there are like new expenses that should be incorporated into that budget, like uh, more personnel to kind of like keep children in separate classrooms and things like that. I mean, moving forward into 2021, we don't necessarily expect the, you know, the same response as we did last time in the pandemic, but you know, what does that new budget, what should it be increased to incorporate all of those uh, new expenses that we've been seeing in the education system? Yes. Good question. <laughs> I mean, that, that's a great observation that happens for both early learning and K-12 and frankly, uh, post-sec too in the university system. We're at a time that they're cutting budgets, their costs are increasing exponentially because you know, at the beginning of 2020, what school system or early learning system planned for having to buy PPP, right? Like, you, know, you how do I buy, you know, N95 mask in bulk and where can I get them? Nobody was planning for that. Uh, and not to mention the cleaning equipment, but like the early learning center where my kids are, like they upgraded their entire HVAC system for air filtration. Like that's a big cost. And so you're thinking about all of these costs that are now hitting these institutions of education at a time when their funding is going down. So it's really a twofer kind of hit that they're taking. Yeah, even 
a really interesting example that we learned talking to one of our partners out in rural Georgia. She said that, you know, geographically, a lot of the rural, more rural counties in Georgia, uh, very small student population, but everybody's spread out. And she was saying how to, to take a bus to pick up students, you can only have half of the capacity for school bus. So you're doubling your, you're, you're doubling your trips because you've got half the capacity because you can't put everybody on the bus safely and prevent folks from getting COVID. So that doubles the cost of like fuel. And, you know, so Cam, to your, your, your question, man, a lot of the unexpected costs have put pressure on districts to figure out where to get the money, where to cut in other areas and hoping that the revenues come through to meet, to meet their needs. All right. I just want to say that's my little cousin. I just want to say that that's my little cousin. He runs in the family. We smart like that. Yeah, he should right. be proud. He's representing well. Good job. He already <laughs> after the show's over, we have another conversation. All right. So <laughs> the next issue number four, I don't really want to get into it a lot per se because deliberate restriction. Well, we were talking about virtual learning anyway before we got into this. It's just like it's amplified now. Uh, and I really want to get into five, honestly, but I'll let y'all. Uh, Dana, give us some some insight into number four, you and Robert, and then we'll, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, because I don't think it's a really new issue per se, it's just pressing, because we had to do virtual. I'm shocked. Go ahead, go ahead, Dr. Rickard. I don't hear you. I would say we did. This one, for, for our viewers, uh, delivery of instruction, and you know, Ricardo's right, we're talking about virtual learning, but what we did was we took a different, uh, we sort of took a different spin on this, is that the impact of COVID and everybody working from home or learning from home or, or wherever gave us an opportunity, us meaning the educational industry, to think about how students learn, where we reach them, how do we reach them, how can we engage them? And you know, this is an opportunity for Georgia to really think differently long term about what school could look like. And then clearly. Virtual learning, some kids are great with it, most kids are not. Like that's not the preferred you know, delivery of instruction model, but thinking about different ways, like your different hybrid models and especially these learning pods that have popped up that the way they're currently designed have kind of made equity worse, but could we turn that on its head and think about, if we're talking about you know, high, high need students or students that really need um, extended learning time or focused interventions or English language learners, could districts create their own pods based on a certain need, like for their English language learners or kids who need extra reading support and, you know, and set those up and provide extended learning time around different kind of pods and use some of this virtual technology that we have to support in-person instruction and really think differently about almost like personalized learning. And what have we learned from this time uh, that would be helpful to us moving forward? Also the nobody has good internet and this really isn't working problem. Well, well, well right. And, and that was the only question that I had, which I thought was so huge about this was not, not just the digital divide or the, the virtual learning piece, but there are students who are behind. That does make it a challenge that there's less individualization, I would assume there's less opportunity for that student to just kind of like ask that question or, or just to stay after class and just kind of like, to me, it feels like it would be so exacerbated. And then when I think about the fact that there's kids who are usually two or three or four to a household, and then you've got somebody who's maybe in high school, but they can't just virtual learn because they've got to make lunches for their siblings, which they wouldn't have had to otherwise. And they've got to, you know, because their parents have to work. And so I'm imagining just a lot of, not just a lot of 
I don't want to say latchkey kids, but kids who are having to, to do some parenting and to do some, to do more than just be in school, which is what they were doing all day was just being in school. And that was hard enough. Right. Uh, so yeah, so we're not advocating the current situation as what we should be doing, but what can we learn from this to, I think, supplement once we get back to in-person learning, what could that look like? And what are some alternative models, how we deliver instruction uh, for different types of students based on different needs and where they're learning and, and what they're doing. Uh, this was an issue that Robert actually wrote. And so I'll stop talking and let him really, uh, he, he dug into this a lot. But Robert, before you, before you do that, Cam, what was you about to say? Well, I was just gonna say like, just also keeping in mind that some students don't have like conducive learning environments at home. Um, unfortunately, that's just not a reality for everyone. Um, so I was just gonna add to that, like it's not always just, you know, technical difficulties or the Wi-Fi or things like that. Some students, you know, like rely on, um, you know, guidance counselors to help with their mental health. They rely on um, school lunches to feed them a lot, you know, so there's not necessarily always the stereotypical conducive environment for learning at home. And that's why, you know, school and the incorporation of health, whether that health is emotional health or whether that health is financial health, all these things should kind of be incorporated into that learning, early learning. So I was just going to add to that. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Cam. One of the big takeaways from last year is that schools do a lot more than educate students. So uh, when, when students are not able to be in a, in a school building, they sometimes do go without food. They do go without a hug or someone demonstrating that you know, they care about them. And I think on the technological and actual instructional side, part of what Dana's getting at is you've got a, you have a, a lot of diversity in the student population. We know that we have identifying labels, right? You have students who are second language learners and special needs students. And the opportunity we have is to really figure out how do we cater a little bit more specifically to student needs. There actually are students who are thriving at home mm. virtually. And I think we would be doing those students a disservice by forcing them back into the classroom if a district is able to offer an, an, an experience that really elevates their, their learning. So part of what we're trying to figure out and the, the Department of Education is doing a lot of this too is um, to what extent can we offer, not a buffet, right? Because we can't do that uh, to the extent that some people would like, but how do we ensure that if you learn better in this type of environment, you've got access to that? Because some students do need to be in a classroom setting more days than not, but some students would prefer to be at home pacing themselves according to whatever the virtual experience uh, offers and really kind of going um, in a more customized pace. So I think there's a lot that we're suggesting can be in play more so than we have offered in the past. And a lot of it is gonna be determined by resources, financial resources, but also teachers capacity to do some of the stuff we're yeah. proposing, which is like issue five, right? You've got uh, all these- Ricardo's dying to get into it. You know. <laughs> yeah, no, Ricardo, I, I said You know me so well, you know that's what I'm waiting on. All right, so, five, Ricardo. That, so we no. are asking because of where we sit at now because of COVID, now we are asking teachers to prepare differently, to spend more time virtually, to do all these things. But before we hit COVID, we were having teacher strikes, teachers were having issues about pay. So where do we stand now? Because now we're saying we need more of you. We need you to really, really get into it and really, you know, uh, 
formulate how this should look moving forward if we decide to keep virtual learning. We need you to spend more time with, so how, what does this look like for teachers? Pay-wise, uh, preparation-wise, what does this look like? Which is issue number five? <laughs> Anybody? It's Come on, Dana, what you got? It, it's a hot mess. It is. <laughs> It, unfortunately, I mean, God bless teachers, right? I, I cannot imagine a harder, more challenging job. And I'm sure there are, especially those right now in the healthcare profession, but the teachers, I just, God bless them, I pay for them, pay, pray for them every night. The things that we're looking at are really long-term solutions. Uh, the, the, the partnership is looking at. Uh, in the short term, we have a significant problem with teacher burnout uh, and teachers just feeling, you know, frankly disrespected because they are being asked to do everything. And I don't think generally they feel like they're being told they're the solution, but they're not being brought into the conversations about what that solution, they're being told, this is what you're gonna do. There, there are exceptions. There are some great districts doing it well, but generally I think there's a feeling amongst teachers that this job was already impossible. And now you've put the impossible on top of the impossible. Mm -hmm. um, and God bless them, they're rising to the challenge. It's amazing what they've been able to do out there. But I, I think we are gonna, we've already, we. Before COVID, we had some teacher shortages in some critical areas, uh, different regions of the state or, or subjects. I think we will continue to see shortages expand if we don't change how we treat teachers, how we engage them, how they feel, you know, how we you know, treat them as professionals. That includes appropriate pay, but also appropriate training, appropriate support, um, having them as part of the discussions of what a new, virtual curriculum would look like? Like, how do they share their experiences? How do they collaborate with each other? I think it's a real fundamental rethinking across almost everything in terms of how teachers engage with the profession. Um, and we've been saying for years, teach, treat, you know, treat teachers like professionals, and I, I, we just haven't done it at, at a statewide scale level. And we are going to really, we're already in trouble as a state, and we're really going to be at a crisis point if we don't change how we engage and work with teachers and support them. Yeah, and that, that teacher shortage um, issue has real major implications for, again, the equity conversation we're having, particularly around who gets the best teachers, the most experienced teachers, mm -hmm. um, teachers that are actually teaching in their field, right? So you have some students who get teachers with minimal experience and are not teaching in their subject of expertise. So what does that, I mean, how does that prepare you for, for college or even <clears throat> being ready for the next grade level? Not as well as your, you know, your friend in a different district who is just swimming in resources. And so we, it is important that we shore up the, the teacher pipeline because um, again, it's gonna affect those who are already disadvantaged the most. I mean, we, we in just- the report, the case. I was gonna ask in the report, you mentioned that there's shortages in, in like math and science and what are they? Specialized yeah, mm -hmm. and I kind of was like, well, what else is there? Like, so it's nothing, but, so it's like history and math. I mean, history and English, there's like plenty of those. And that's like, is that is that it? Basically, we have a lot of like elementary school teachers. Um, I mean, if you just look at like the number of people coming out of elementary, reading, you know, science, history, there's a lot of those. And, and there's a lot of non-science fields, but we're particularly at the middle and high school level, we have a shortage of math and science teachers, special education teachers, 
English as a second language teachers. Um, and we know like the economic pipeline, the jobs are in the STEM field. And we know Georgia really struggles as most states do like with our math and you know, all these other kinds of stuff. So it's a real critical need for us. Um, and then especially in the rural areas where there's just not a physics teacher in every school and you know, all these other kinds of things. Um, and also too, the, the diversity of the teaching core, I think is really important. And it's something that we don't talk about very much, but I think we really need to, is that you know, the more than 50% um, of our students enrolled in public school are black or brown students, they're minority students. Uh, but I think 60 to 70% of our teaching core are white. Um, and the, the research has shown that for black or brown students, just having one black or brown teacher for like one year has a significant impact on their learning. And so we've got to think about how do we recruit uh, black and brown teachers into the profession and keep them there because they have a real significant impact. It's really, I think, impactful for a, a child to see themselves as a professional in front of them, teaching and educating, and we just don't have enough of those. And so we really need to think about strategies to, to in recruitment and retention along those lines. Cam, you got any thoughts? Well, I was just gonna say, growing up in a very like low income um, area, uh, we weren't able to necessarily have teachers that you know looked like me. Most of the teachers that I had um, in early education were were white. So it just kind of like that just goes to show that you know, I never actually saw it as a possibility until I got to high school where I had a lot of foreign teachers and they still did not necessarily know how to handle that the dynamic of the classroom because it was kind of like a big cultural shift. So just like, you know, experiencing that firsthand, it kind of just like opened my eyes to like the disparities as far as like teachers um, not being able the better teachers being pushed to the better districts in the state and then those better districts receiving better instruction and it kind of leaves those rural areas to the to the side so like how do we manage the as far as like the disbursement of good teachers or the disbursement of teachers who can actually like produce a good learning environment how do we expand that to rural areas like does that come through funding and through uh in increasing teachers pays like how does that work and more men too. I really appreciated my yes. African American men in particular. There's a couple of um, initiatives in other states that are really looking at how to do that. And so, Cam, that's a really great question. Part of it is certainly pay, right? Like you need to you need to have a a career pathway that you feel. Um, would support you and your family. And so one of the things that a couple people have been talking about that, especially if you're a a first generation college student, for example, and you're looking for you know, a career, you're probably not gonna go into teaching because chances are if you're a first generation college student, you're probably coming from a poverty background, your family is poor, you're looking to raise yourself and in your entire family out of poverty. Teaching's not the way to go, right? Um, and so there is just this practical level of we got to pay teachers more to attract people into into it. But also too, thinking about the, like the rural areas, you know, frankly, no matter how much you would pay me, I'm not going to go to rural Georgia, especially mm -hmm. if I'm a young person like just out of college. Like I'm not going to go to Cairo. Uh, there's nothing to do there. You tell me there's no internet. What am I, you know? And so a lot of um, Georgia is one of the states that really looking at sort of the grow down. 
And so how do you encourage folks who are from that area who have family and like it and it's their, you know, no judgments against Cairo. It's lovely. I can't go. There's no internet. I can't go because yeah. I don't even know where that is. <laughs> Down south, uh, there's many wonderful reasons to, to be in rural Georgia, but if you grow your own, people who are from there that want to stay and they know the community, they know the people, you know, that kind of stuff. Like how do we encourage folks to become teachers from that community and stay there and continue to be teachers. That seems to be a big strategy that the people are doubling down on. And so, you know, you look into things like loan forgiveness for teacher loans and you know, all these other kinds of things that we can do to encourage that kind of um, want. Yeah. All right, let's, let's, let's segue into issue six. Now, issue six to me is another not new issue. My worry and mean actually you guys' boss, uh, Mr. Stephen Dolger, talked about this last year, uh, his concern about being able to gauge when these kids are all back in one classroom, how are you going to be able to gauge where each child is outside of a standardized test that is not culturally uh, inviting, especially to color minority kids who already don't like taking tests. So how are we going to gauge or assess where they are when they all get back into one classroom, which is issue number six? accountability and assessments. What you got? <laughs> what, what you got? What you got, Dana? What you got, Robert? What, what we got? Well, I'll, let me just kind of jump in at a high level. You know, one of the things we've seen in Georgia for a while now is this tension between testing. Um, do we test too much? Do we test enough? Why are we testing? Mm -hmm. And then so assessments and accountability are kind of in lockstep, right? You want to be sure that schools are mindful of all their students. Um, one of the things we lost from No Child Left Behind to what we have now in ESSA is, is just kind of like that. How is everybody doing? Did we lose that piece, Dana? Let me not, I don't wanna. A little bit on the accountability side, we're right. looking at the subgroups. Right, um, so. There's very small how, percentage of is, is subgroup component. Right, so knowing how all your students are doing is important because, um, if you're not testing, you're not being sure that the instruction is high quality and everything is translating to the student achievement and, you, and you've got some problems. So uh, part of what we, we outline in, the, in the, the issue is the difference between state mandated tests and, 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 and districts deciding that they're gonna do a lot of testing and parsing out the, the two because um, a lot of folks have articulated even, even at upper levels of leadership that we're over-testing um, our students. But at the same time, to your point, Ricardo, how do you know where students are? How do you know if they're ready for the next grade level if there's no standardized way of assessing uh, learning? And so last year, Georgia, as a, as a lot of states, I think all 50 states applied and received a waiver for, was it the federally mandated testing? Yeah, uh, the end of year test because- yeah, the end of year test. There's no reason to- we, so we didn't test at the end of last year and um, right yeah. right so the idea of pausing assessments because clearly the learning was disrupted um but then revisiting to this school year some some states tried to extend that waiver into 2020 2021 and there was some pushback on that because it's like okay we're trying to get back to some normalcy we still need to know how students are doing we did have this aberration uh, but now we need to get back to figuring out um, how everyone's doing, especially the vulnerable students we've been talking about all um, all day. 
so I'm I'm gonna pause there because Dana can get down to the weeds a little bit more, but that's a lot of what this uh, issue is about. Yeah, we were trying to push the conversation away from just too many tests and really think about, okay, so what are the right tests and what are we doing with the results? Like, why are we testing and how can we have a testing system that is sort of sort of uniform across the state? So everybody's not doing their own thing and we, we don't know if that's a good test or a bad test. Like, how do we make sure we have a good quality test that's uniform across the state that lets us know how our kids are learning and where they are. And I think it's never been more important than now because of the uneven access that the kids have had, both when the shutdown happened in March, but also you know this, this school year, some are back in person, some are still virtual, it's sort of all over the place, like, you know, are kids learning? And I think parents are really being aware of, you know, I had talked to a friend the other day. She's like, yeah, my kid's doing great, but I don't think they're learning anything, but they're happy and they're online all day, but it just doesn't feel like, and so they're like, what's the state plan to make sure that we make sure our kids are learning? And so, you know, I agree that this is not the time for the high stakes test where we hold teachers accountable and because it's just too much, but that doesn't mean we don't test. Right. That doesn't mean we just say, okay, it's too stressful for kids. We're not going to, you know, assess them, but you know, what's, the, the plan on a statewide level to keep track of how everybody's doing so that we know exactly how far behind kids got. So what are they gonna need to catch up? What kind of resources are schools gonna need to help them catch up? Or who, you know, in some of the, you know, higher income kids may have accelerated like crazy. If we had a really, you know, parent who was like, we're all in and suddenly they're like in their high school level now because they did Khan Academy 24 hours a day. Um, like, we just don't know. And so how do we adjust to where kids are now, where are kids now and what do schools need to adjust to either catch them up or keep them going? Without normalized tests, we, we won't know. And that that's a problem. Cam, thoughts? Yeah. Those thoughts. tests, those tests, I mean, actually come in handy, uh, in as you were saying, like they they test not only learning, uh, you know how well students are learning, but they also can kind of be used as a comparison because um, there's like statistics that low income students, like students that are concentrating in low income schools, that those schools actually have lower test scores than you know high income students. So it's just speaking to that, like those tests can be compared to, to understand what resources are needed. Those tests can be compared to understand like, hey, what does this district have that they're excelling? And what does this district have that they aren't excelling? And, you know, just, I was just thinking about, you know, how these tests can be used to fortify those low income school districts and how it can be used as like, you know, the high test scores from higher income schools, like how those, you know, test scores can be used to understand like, hey, this is how you improve test scores in this area by adding resources, by adding, you know, subscriptions and things like that for students to utilize so that they have the resources not only at home, but while they're at school. Mm -hmm. All right, so I'm going to skip seven because that's another, we're, we're, you know, rearing time. So I'm gonna skip seven because I'm really interested in eight. So we already knew it was an issue with getting kids to graduate or completing education. Now we're talking about, kids being farther behind and trying to, I don't even know how that's even gonna, you know what? I don't even know how that's gonna work now that I think about it. Cause now the kids are farther behind and now you gotta try to uh, accelerate them to get them to a place where they can graduate. So I, what is this, what, what is this? Post-secondary completion, the a pathway to prosperity. I'll let y'all take it from there. I, my brain just went into overload thinking about how that even plays out. 
you know, because we just talked about uh, assessments and trying to figure out where kids actually are when they return to buildings, if we return back to buildings. Now you're saying, okay, well, you got to graduate too. So you've been virtually learning and some of these kids haven't even, because Ramon, remember we talked to um, Frank who has community and schools. And he was saying some of those kids haven't even logged in since last year. So now yeah, we're saying- Yeah, I think so. back in the still got their diplomas though. Huh? I think a lot of them still got their diplomas though. Mm. Oh, that's, that's terrible. <laughs> um, that's, that's, that's another problem. Okay, so y'all take it away. Issue number eight, y'all take it away. Uh, well, this one is, uh, as you mentioned, I'm looking at my, my screen, a post-secondary completion pathway to prosperity. You know, we've been pre-COVID, you know, everybody's been saying, you know, in, in Georgia and all across the country, you no longer just need a high school diploma to get a good job, right? The good jobs, family supporting jobs, you need at least some, at least an associate's degree. And so when we talk about post-secondary, we talk about associate's degree all the way through. So mm -hmm. something, you know, beyond high school. And so again, looking at the structural historical stuff that we've been talking about, pre-COVID, we knew that, again, race and class was much more highly predictive of your ability to access and successfully complete any kind of post-secondary training. Like that was the key predictor relative mm -hmm. to doesn't matter how smart you are or anything else. It had to do with your race and your in your income. And we've seen, you know, trends over the years that the highest, um, like the top tier colleges have become more and more exclusively white and high income. And, you know, meanwhile, the relative population of people has become more and more diverse. And so there is a big access gap uh, to post-secondary access and completion. And that was pre-COVID. And then Ricardo, as you, you were mentioning that everything's changed from COVID and especially low-income and students of color have taken such a hard hit that post-secondary plans are changing quickly. And that you see a lot of students who were graduated in 2020 that they don't know if they can go on to post-secondary and more likely the low-income and students of color are not going on to post-secondary even if they had plans you know pre-covid because of you know economies and stuff and so this issue really looks at you know we got to address those barriers and a lot of it has to do with financial aid georgia is one of two states in the country that does not have a statewide need-based aid program there's certainly need-based aid in Georgia. Um, you can get need-based aid through different um, universities and settings, and then there are a couple, but in terms of just like a blanket statewide need-based aid program, we don't have one. That is just, um, we're not gonna get where we need to be without it. But when you look more, more deeply at this, that it's not just money. Um, if you break out, and there's a lot of, um, data in this in this chapter, even for me, there's a lot of data in this chapter. But if you look at it by regardless of income, so if you have upper income African Americans compared to upper income, there is still a gap on access and completion. And a lot of it has to do with income versus wealth. And that's something that we don't talk about very much. Whereas the white families generally um, in the upper income levels, have been able to generate generational wealth, right? Because since the New Deal and whatever, they've had mortgages and access to VA loans and all, you know, and credits and all these other kinds of things that there is money, family wealth supporting them, not just the income of the parents. Where you have equal income African-American families who did not have 
uh, access to the mortgages and all of these other kinds of things, you know, throughout the 19th and most of 20th century, uh, they were not able to generate that level of wealth and safety net. And so you do see these different kinds of barriers, even within income categories. And that's something a lot of people don't talk about. And so really thinking about these historical reasons why it's just harder um, to, to complete that we need to to really address those when we, we think about policies to assist families and, and kids and students to complete their degree. That was amazing. Like that, you just, you hit so many, that was good. That, that was real. That's the clip I'm going to use. That, that's, you're right. I would have never thought about that. The connection that goes with not just income, but the resources that you would need to sustain that income and build off of that, that ideology, that concept. I was well, actually really, really good. Ricardo, let me give you a data point that I think people don't don't think about that in Georgia, and this is for the 2017-2018 school year, so relatively recent data, so it would not have changed much. In Georgia, the average net worth, so we're talking about overall wealth, the average net worth of a white family sending a student to undergraduate study was about $130,000. What? Wait, the oh average God. net worth for a corresponding black family was $8,000. Did you say eight? I did. I said 130,000 and then I said eight. Well, I, I, there was, and I think uh, Frank hit on this as well, but there was like a, a gap of like $60,000 between black, the average black family and the average white family. I think that gap was like $60,000, but you literally just said 8,000. I did. I, I'm sorry, it's 8,050. <laughs> oh, that makes it better, Dana. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, and so thinking about this, the impact of intergenerational wealth versus just family income changes your perspective on the kinds of policies that we would need to really correct this. I don't even know where you would begin. Yeah, but Ricardo, yeah, but that, there's so much lived experience that makes that kind of plain, you know, if you even just going to go, going to an undergrad, undergraduate institution and seeing how different people spend their spring breaks and, and why and um, I mean, that, that's, you know. Because I went to Coastal in Myrtle Beach. So, of course, you know, we do I need to even get into that? You know, they're going to the, school, the, the slopes, you know, to go skiing while I'm going back to South Carolina to play in some snow and make some, some snowmen. I mean, it's, it's yeah. a. Or I'm it's, sleeping in the student lounge and waiting tables at Applebee's. Uh, so different literally, spend, I mean, different I, spend, you know, it, I think it becomes kind of obvious, but that's. I'm glad that it's still important, but I do wonder if there's not a change, I guess, going back to assessments and how, how this happens. I do remember in last year, and this was in law school, but there were a lot of, uh, a lot of individuals who were just kind of, uh, for one thing, were panicking about any assessments remaining on the calendar, given what was going on. And, and on top of that, I do know that there was other schools that just kind of that did the best they could, did a test, but never did a final test or you know never completed this project or that project. And so I kind of wonder if that was a senior year for some students, like, does that kind of look like, all right, well, here you go, you know, <laughs> like you're done because what else can I do? Like keep you over the summer for something we can control. This is ridiculous. All right, we're, we're pretty much out of time. So we'll just jump on to issue number 10. To wrap it all up, reinventing education in Georgia, a call for leadership and collaboration. So let's, let's wrap it all up. So Adina, I'll let you go ahead and start with this one or end with this one. Yeah, this one is a bit of a wonky one. There's no data or, or fun charts or anything, but you know, we've been talking this whole time about 
reinventing education about doing things completely differently, you know, systemic barriers and taking down systems and putting them back together. And then all of the stuff that has been put on our local districts to just operate. So keep that in mind. And then also remember that Georgia is what we call a local control state, meaning that especially in education, the, the trend has been there for a while that give as much power and decision-making authority to the locals to do whatever it is they need. And so we don't like, we as a state, we don't like state mandates. Like you will do this, requirements, things like that. Uh, and for the most part, local districts really like that because it gives them a lot more control over what they spend their budget on, you know, their local priorities, hiring and firing, their types of curriculums and things like that. But during this time of COVID and trying to reopen their schools under the pandemic, I think, you know, our, our state level leaders put out a lot of guidance and said, here's some things you might try. Here's some recommendations. There were, there were no requirements for districts other than um, here's what you have to do if someone tests positive for COVID in terms of reporting. Mm -hmm. uh, but there, there, there were no requirements over anything from you have to wear a mask to you have to report you know, what your numbers are or anything like that. It was all suggestions. And so I think a lot of local leaders really felt like, and, and the state was like, and let us know what you need, make your choices and we'll support you. Mm. And so I think what we're facing now is beyond what a local district can do, nor should they be asked to do. Um, I think what we need is to really take a step back and think about, again, long-term planning. If we're talking about entire system restructuring, you know, if we're talking about, you know, how do we think about retraining teachers? How do we rethink funding formulas? How do we merge health and economic development and education? Like, I think we need a strong coordinated plan that's sort of coordinated at the state level for then the local districts to operate within and then have their local control around, okay, what does this mean for us? What are our priorities? How do we sort of move forward? And I think we're really lacking a strong plan of how do we get from A to B? Like, where do we wanna go and how do we get there? And I think that's what the state needs right now. Robert. What do you wanna say about that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a mammoth effort. You know, I think um, one of the things that's most obvious is that education is almost like the hub of a lot of what we want to do. And you've got all these spokes, right? And everybody's got to work in concert to get to where we want to be. And, and to Dana's point, the, the idea of being a local, locally controlled um, state sometimes creates resistance to a more collective approach to getting things done. But I think it's necessary. And I think a lot of times what we found, especially when we present on like our economics of education is if you talk dollars, if you talk the economy and how this is going to be a benefit to you locally, your students will be better, your economy will be stronger, folks buy in a little more easily. So I, I think that, um, you know, it's an uphill battle, but I, I think that with the right leaders saying the right things and, and tapping the right people, it's doable. Uh, and that's that's the work we're really all about as a partnership is bringing all these folks together, convening them, you know, giving them the charge and trying to equip them with the best information possible so they can make good decisions. 
that was a good company. That was good the way you threw that company line in. You know, that's what the <laughs> partnership. That was good company. Throw that in. Communication director. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm, I'm. You know, that was an impressive. St- all right, two. All right, two for two. Two impressive statements from the two of you. All right, so we're out of time. Uh, so I'm gonna get some final thoughts. Cam, give your final thoughts. What you know? What's your final thoughts? Um, well, I think that this uh, this particular segment kind of just highlighted how important the education system is in the economy and how the education system just kind of it pumps the economic pipeline in a lot of states. So hopefully this show will show, you know, leaders and uh, lobbyists and people who are just advocating for the education system. This will show them how important it is that, you know, how important their job is and how important it is to think about funding education more and allocating the the necessary funds to the necessary entities, so. Simone? Just encourage everybody to check out the top 10 issues, the one page summaries, which I really, really like, and just thank the doctors for having really clear and concise and really powerful research, which doesn't read like, doesn't read partisan, doesn't read left, doesn't read right, is just very, very helpful, just, just useful and pragmatic research. And thank you both for having such tireless optimism. I feel like the more we talk, the more I learn and the more frustrated I get and the more, but the more optimistic you both are. There's always these opportunities for this, this you stuff that I feel like should be, day. Really <laughs> it should be really simple and I don't get why it's not, but no, but this was, this was really helpful. We can do this, Simone. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I think this year, you guys' top 10 really hit. When I looked at it, I was like, wow. Like, we really going to go all in on these things. A lot of these things were not new. They've just been amplified and magnified because of COVID. Um, but I will definitely say, after hearing this conversation, I was having an idea of getting an, an education panel together to really hash out uh, some of these things. And I think you guys have really put a fire under me to get you and some other people that we chat with uh, because, you know, you guys do the, the policy aspect and all these things. And then we have like Frank who does the actual in schools. This is what I'm seeing type thing. So really to put you all on one platform and have a real conversation from all these different aspects of people at the leadership level and at the everyday level will be really insightful. So I think I'm going to have to put that together because clearly I don't have enough to do. But, uh, you know, we might have to put that together. So be on the lookout. I'll talk to your communications director, uh, <laughs> Dr. Rickman, and we see if we can get y'all back on a bigger panel. We can really hash a lot of this stuff out. Um, all right. So there we have it. Thank you again to Dr. Gaines and Dr. Rickman for being with us again. We appreciate you guys for bringing a lot of perspective that God knows we need going into this year. And, uh, yeah, so y'all stick around. Simone, you have to stop the streaming because you have the power to do so. And uh, we will see you guys next Friday. Uh, next Friday. We are talking about mental health and African-Americans from schizophrenia to uh, bipolarism with uh, Regina. Look on the website, rightscommunity.com. I can't remember off the top of my head, uh, but that's what she does. So she's going to be here next week. We're going to really get into that. And the week after that, we're talking about environmental justice. I know most people know what that is. I didn't know what it was. But we're going to get into it with Dr. Latoria Whitehead the Friday after that. It's going to be some good stuff. So we'll see you guys next Friday. Same time, same place on Leadership Plan with your host, Ricardo Rice. Everybody hold on. All right, you can stop. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.